A book came out recently, the last couple of months ago, written by Brian Chapel, who is president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. And the title of the book, he was the editor of it, was called The Hardest Sermons You Will Ever Have to Preach. And I'd never heard of a book like that. I'm glad it was written. Um, coming out of a week like we've just had, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to preach. But I believe that Jesus reveals himself in John chapter 11 this morning in a way that is absolutely compelling, is absolutely appropriate, and is exactly what we need to hear this morning. We're in the I Am series, and the I Am that we come to this morning is I Am the Resurrection and the Life. I want us to look at three things about Jesus this morning. And here's the first one. We're going to get right to work. Jesus dearly loves his friends. Jesus dearly loves his friends. We see at the beginning of the chapter, John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of man may be glorified through it. Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. Jesus dearly loves his friends. That fact is repeatedly stressed throughout this portion of God's word. There's a family. Lazarus is the brother, and he has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he falls ill. And Jesus stresses, or I should say John stresses, that Jesus loves this family in verse 2, in verse 3, and in verse 5. You say, I see it in verse 3 and I see it in verse 5. Where is it in verse 2? Because he doesn't use the word love. He just says that Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. If you remember, that event hasn't occurred yet. That event doesn't occur till the next chapter, John chapter 12. So why did John feel the need to slip that in right here? Well, I think in part it's because... John wants to emphasize that Jesus doesn't love us because of the things we do for him. He loves us because he loves us. He didn't love Mary because she anointed him. He loves Mary and her anointing of Jesus was a response to his love for her. And you remember, this family is not a perfect family. In Luke chapter 10, we see a different episode with Mary and Martha. And Martha is very fretful and anxious and worried about many things. And Mary is sitting on the floor listening to Jesus. But notice Jesus says that he loves them both. He loves the fretful, troubled, careful Martha 
just as much as he loves the Mary who sits at his feet and listens to his word. He loves this family. Now, how does this chapter demonstrate that Jesus really loves them? Well, there's one amazing way that you may not notice unless you know the broader context of John chapter 11. Consider what's going on around Jesus at this time. At the end of chapter 10 in verse 31, we read that Jesus is on the verge of being stoned to death. He has just claimed that before Abraham was, I am, and there's this whole situation that goes on from 8, 9, and 10, where Jesus repeatedly makes claims that he is God. In verse chapter 10, verse 31, just a few verses back, we read the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And the previous verse tells us why, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So Jesus has just come out of a near-death experience. And in verse 39 of chapter 10, it says, Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So Jesus leaves a region. He has just been on the verge of being stoned and arrested, and he gets news about Lazarus. In verse 7, we read, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? So in order to to, to help Lazarus, in order to care for Mary and Martha, he had to go back into the war zone. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the, light, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. They just assumed he literally meant fall asleep, that he's going to wake back up in a few hours. He's taking a nap, Jesus. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You get what's going on. Almost arrested, almost stoned. Jesus says, let's go back. The disciples said, this isn't going to end well. Let's go. And then at the end of chapter 11, in verses 45 to 57, I'm not going to take time to read it. Well, after the resurrection of Lazarus, which we'll get to later, some people believe in Jesus. And as a result of this, others went to the authorities and told them what he was doing. Told them that he was healing. Told them that he was doing miracles and signs and raising the dead. And this led, according to John chapter 11, verse 53, a plan to kill Jesus and Jesus and his disciples being forced to live in obscurity. Now, why do I tell you all that? I tell you all that because that proves that Jesus dearly loves his friends. He's putting his neck out for them. He's almost been stoned, almost been arrested, going back into the war zone where they're going to make a plan to kill him and his disciples are going to have to live in obscurity until until they do. And he still goes. Jesus dearly loves his friends. When they're suffering, he's there. No matter what it costs him. And doesn't this picture what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross anyway? Jesus' love for this family is measured by his willingness to die for them. And this event ultimately foreshadows the cross where the love of Jesus for them and us is supremely displayed. 
So why does John choose to emphasize the love of Jesus for this family in these first few verses? Why does he stress it? Surely John is stressing Jesus' love for this family because he knows that what Jesus is about to do here does not feel like love to most people. Most people believe that God loves them if their lives are easy. They equate the love of God with freedom from pain, which means if God loves me, he doesn't let tragedy touch my life. I won't lose my job. My mother won't get cancer. My child won't die. However, Jesus is going to show us that this is not what the love of God means. People that he dearly loves suffer, get sick, and die. Jesus dearly loves his friends. You know, one of Jesus' friends was a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was known as a prayer warrior if there ever was one. He built orphanages in England and inspired the faith of thousands, and his life was full of trouble. In July of 1853, Lydia Mueller, his only child, his only daughter, was struck with typhoid fever. Even though God spared her life, it is interesting to note that George rooted the reason for the trouble in God's love for him. Listen to what he said. I want to read this to you. This is how he concludes his journal entry about Lydia's sickness and eventual recovery, but how he interpreted that period of suffering in his life. He said, of all the trials of faith that as yet I have had to pass through, this was the greatest. And by God's abundant mercy, I own it to his praise. I was enabled to delight myself in the will of God. For I felt perfectly sure that if the Lord took this beloved daughter, it would be best for her parents, best for herself, and more for the glory of God than if she lived. This better part I was satisfied with, and thus my heart had peace, perfect peace, and I had not a moment's anxiety. How was he able to have peace, perfect peace? He believed that Jesus loved him and would only do what was best for him. Now that's absolutely shocking to most people. Mueller says that it was the sickness of his daughter was motivated by God's love for him and he knew that God would do what was best for him, his wife and his daughter and God's own glory in the situation. Do you have the same view of God that Mueller has? Do you equate the love of God for you with the relative ease of your life? Or do you see trials and difficulties and hardships and pain and loss as a means by which God loves you and wants to reveal his glory in and through you? One writer says, we should not evaluate Jesus's love for us by our circumstances, but rather we should evaluate our circumstances by Jesus's love for us. That's where we've got to land. We don't evaluate Jesus' love for us by our circumstances. We evaluate our circumstances in light of Jesus' love. That's point number one. Jesus dearly loves his friends. Number two, Jesus does things we don't understand. Jesus does things we don't understand. One of the most jarring parts of this story is found in the connection between verses 5 and 6. Would you look there? Now Jesus loved Martha 
and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you get that? I'm going to read it again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and let him die. Jesus does things we don't understand. This is really unusual. It was the love of Jesus for this family and for his disciples that caused him to choose to let Lazarus die. The reason Jesus did not go to heal Lazarus when he heard he was sick was because he loved Lazarus, he loved Mary, he loved Martha. He would stay where he was, let Lazarus die because he loved them. Wait. How is that love? John has gone out of his way to set us up here. We just talked about it in the whole first point. Jesus dearly loves his friends. That's clear. That's obvious. But he sure doesn't act like it. At least not to our natural way of thinking. Jesus loves them. He loves them. He loves them. He repeats that. Therefore, he does not heal Lazarus, but lets him die. And the explanation for why this is love is given in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Now, that's why it's love. In other words, it was more loving, listen carefully, it was more loving to put Lazarus through death and his sisters through immeasurable, heart-wrenching grief if that would reveal more of God's glory to them and more of the glory of Christ. Jesus loves us by showing us himself. We have a hard time getting our head around that. We assume... That, and Mary and Martha did in part two, as we're going to see, that if Jesus loved them, he would have come before Lazarus died and prevented him from dying. But Jesus is telling us that it is because he loved them that he did not come. This illness will turn out for the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. This illness will put the glory of God on display. It will make Jesus look amazing. Therefore, love lets him die. Because what Mary and Martha need more than anything is a vision of a glorified Jesus. They need a Jesus who is reigning, who is God, who is powerful. And if Lazarus' death will accomplish that in their life, let him die. Because that's more important. So Jesus is really redefining love for us here. He does not equate love for us in this life by sparing us of suffering and death. He mainly loves us by showing us and giving us himself in the midst of suffering and death. And since suffering and death will result in us being able to see and taste and feel and know and experience and being enthralled with the glory of God more than if we didn't experience suffering and death, Jesus is committed to not spare us of suffering. Since to do so would rob us of more enjoyment of him, which is not loving. That's the way Jesus thinks. 
So what is love according to Jesus? What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? John Piper writes this. Love means giving us what we need most. Okay, everybody agree with that? Love means giving people what they need the most. And what we need the most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what's that? What will give us the fullest and longest joy? The answer in this text is clear. A revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing and admiring and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then Piper wraps up with this. He says, when someone is willing to die or let your brother die to give you and your brother that, he loves you. Therefore, love is doing whatever you have to do to help people see and treasure the glory of God as their supreme joy, to help people see and be satisfied with the glory of God. The aim of love is to bring people to the fullest knowledge and the fullest enjoyment of the glory of God. That is what Jesus says love is. Let me show you one other place, John chapter 14. Would you turn there with me? Take, go over two chapters or three chapters, to John chapter 14 and verse 21, and notice this amazing statement. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, John 14, 21, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I, here's the key phrase, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That is the way Jesus loves his people, by manifesting himself to his people. What a wonderful statement. I will love you and I will manifest myself to you. That's how I love you. If we demand that God love us the way the world expects us to be loved in this life, we won't know what it is to be really loved, by God at least. The love of God is the gift of God himself. You know, one family that understood this deeply was the Edwards family. And by Edwards, I'm referring to Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s. Let me tell you a story about how his life ended. In the fall of 1757, Edwards was asked to assume the presidency of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton University. He responded to the trustees who asked him to take over the presidency in a letter dated October 19th, 1757, citing several reasons why he felt unfit to do that, to take that job. And here's what he wrote. Edward says, I have a constitution, I have a body in many particular respects that is very unhappy. (laughs) Often occasioning a kind of childish weakness and contemptibleness of speech and presence and demeanor. In other words, I'm not very pleasant to be around. And you guys want a college president, you know, I'm supposed to like fundraise. (laughs) I'm not necessarily the most gregarious, outgoing, winsome kind of guy. I'm not Pastor Ted Chrisman. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, with a disagreeable dullness and stiffness about me, much unfitting me for conversation, but more especially for the government of a college. And then he writes, also in some parts of learning, particularly in algebra and the higher parts of mathematics, I have some deficiency. (laughs) 
So I'm right there with him. I struggle with math, just, but I don't think I even made it to algebra. Notwithstanding his disinclination to take the job, he was installed as the president. Evidently, they convinced him on February 16th, which was about six months later in 1758. The future was looking bright for Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he felt weak. He felt unfit for the task, but that's a great place to be as a leader. But little did he know that things were about to drastically change. He's a young man, fairly young, not super young, but fairly young. But little did he know the things that were about to drastically change. However, smallpox was a widespread illness in New England at the time, and it was often fatal. So on February 23rd, about one week after he assumed the presidency, Edwards was inoculated for smallpox. He contracted the disease on the roof of his mouth and throat. He eventually struggled to swallow even the liquids that were essential for recovery. After a couple weeks of extreme weakness and near starvation, he came down with a fever And he died one month later, March 22nd, 1758. Now, how did he respond to this when he knew that his disease would be fatal? When his throat began to close up. He wrote the following to his daughter, Lucy. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she'll be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And as to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. The testimony of one person who saw him on his deathbed and died was Dr. William Shippen, who was the physician who administered the inoculation to Edwards in the first place. Immediately upon Jonathan Edwards' death, he wrote the following to his wife, Sarah, not the doctor's wife, but Jonathan Edwards' wife. He wrote this, quote, And never did any mortal man more fully and clearly evidence the sincerity of all his beliefs by one continued universal calm cheerful resignation and patient submission to the divine will through every stage of his disease than he not so much as one discontented expression nor the least appearance of murmuring throughout the whole process Now, for a guy who said that he struggled with being unhappy and having what he called a stiffness and dullness and contemptibleness and weakness, he manifested an amazing calm and amazing resignation to God's will. How do you do that? Grace. God visited him and Jesus manifested himself to him on his deathbed. But the story's not over. The doctor goes on to write, and never did any person die with more perfect freedom from pain, not so much as one distorted hair, but in the most proper sense of the words, he really fell asleep. Death had certainly lost its sting, at least as it concerns him. And how did his wife Sarah respond? On April 3rd, she wrote to her daughter Esther, 
a letter. This is about two weeks after Jonathan's death. And Sarah writes the following, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me, now listen to this phrase, he has made me adore his goodness that we had Jonathan for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. But you know what? Esther never got the letter. Less than two weeks following her father's death, she contracted a fever, not from smallpox, and died on April 7th, leaving two infants. Her mom wrote the letter on April 3rd. She died on April 7th. She never got to read it. And we know there wasn't email back then. Took a while to get letters. Now, Sarah Edwards did not long survive her husband and her daughter. She just lost her husband. She wrote to her daughter, Esther, who died before she could get the letter. And six months later, on October 2nd, 1758, Sarah herself died at age 48 from dysentery in Philadelphia. So let's get the entire picture. God takes a godly man in the prime of his career and in the same year takes his wife and their daughter leaving two infants without a mother or grandparents on their mother's side. What lessons do we learn from that? A couple. First, don't measure, brothers and sisters, don't measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life. If that were the measure of God's love, he hated the Edwards family. He hated them. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you and how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy. And the Edwards family had that in abundance. And therefore, God loved Esther and loved Sarah and loved Jonathan. Also, don't judge God by what you can make sense of right now. Wait until the resurrection. Between the death of Lazarus and his resurrection four days later, his family could not see how God would be glorified in it. That would be revealed later at his resurrection. So God is doing more now, brothers and sisters, than we can possibly know. And some of it we will know in this life. But all of it we will know when the resurrection brings it all to light at the last day. So Jesus does things we don't understand. That's the point. But he's loving us in the midst of all of it. Final point. Number three. Jesus is always up to something really good and wants us to trust him. Jesus dearly loves his friends. Jesus does things we don't understand. And three, Jesus is always up to something really good, and he wants us to trust him. Jesus had chosen to love Lazarus and his sisters by not coming immediately. And now, his not coming 
is being used to question his love. If he'd come right away, nobody'd be crying. But there are three people in this passage that don't understand what Jesus is doing and can't conceive how what he is doing is any good. They're all, they're all struggling with doubt and suspicion. Turn back to John chapter 11 if you haven't already. And let's look at verses 20 and 21. The first person who comes with questions is Martha. When Jesus finally does arrive. And she says... So when Martha heard that Lazarus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then in verse 32, we see Mary saying the exact same thing as her sister. And keep in mind, they didn't hear each other. Mary was sitting in the house when Martha came out. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, verse 32, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Third group, the mourners who were there to comfort Mary and Martha. Verses 36 and 37, Jesus has just wept. So the Jews said, verse 36, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now Mary and Martha are loved by Jesus. They are Christians. They are followers of Jesus Christ. And what a strange mixture of faith and unbelief are found in the hearts of true believers. Don't think that it's always going to look like it looked with George Mueller and Jonathan Edwards. There can be true faith, true glory going to Jesus, and true trust, and not such a peaceful, calm resignation, resignation to God's will. There can be a wrestling. There can be a struggling. But at the bottom of it, there is calm and peace and joy. Those aren't exclusive. We see it right here in Mary and Martha. Now, I want us to look at what Jesus says, how he feels, and then what he does. Three steps. And he's going to do something really good. First of all, what he says. Martha asks in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my mother would not, my brother would not have died. She questions, but she hasn't given up. She hasn't lost hope. She hasn't abandoned the faith. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus answers verse 23, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha says to him, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus says, wait. It's not just the last day that concerns the resurrection. It's also this day. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, listen, Martha, you believe that there is a great and glorious day of resurrection coming at the end of the age when all believers will be raised bodily from the grave and you're right about that. But here's the mystery. I'm here and that signifies that this day has arrived. You thought that day would come with the Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am here. I have come. And let me be specific, Martha. I'm exactly what you need. I'm exactly what Lazarus needs. I'm exactly what Mary needs. He is dead. You're alive. So listen, whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. That's for you. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for you. Do you believe it? And Martha says, or she doesn't quite respond, but Jesus emphasizes, I will rescue Lazarus, body and soul from the grave. And when I do it, doesn't really matter. And you, right now you live, you believe in me, so you will never die. There will not be one millisecond when you're out of saving fellowship with me. Your death will be entrance into life. It'll almost be as if you didn't die. So you know what that means, Martha? It means I love you. I love your brother. I'm not going to abandon his soul to the pit and let his flesh be destroyed. I'm going to raise him up. I'm telling you all this because I love you and I love Lazarus. So he gives Martha truth, a ministry of truth. He says, Martha, listen, here's truth about me. It's very important to those who are suffering, a ministry of truth. A ministry that shows Christ as big and glorious and awesome and able to meet all your needs. But notice he doesn't just give a ministry of truth. He gives a ministry of truth to Martha. He gives a ministry of tears to Mary. We see this in how he feels. At the end of verse 32, Mary comes out and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing as Martha said. And Jesus sees her weeping. And he's deeply deeply moved and greatly troubled in his spirit. Now, I don't have time to go into all of that. I would love to spend more time talking to you about what it, what it meant for Jesus to be deeply moved and greatly troubled. It's very, very enlightening. But I'll just say this. It's not mere sorrow. In fact, the word deeply moved is used again in verse 38, if you'll look there. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now, this was after verse 37, where the man, or some of them said, the mourners said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I mean, that's an accusation. And then Jesus says, now deeply moved again, he turns to the tomb. Now, what's he, he's deeply moved about an accusation. Now, what's that all about? Let me explain. This word, deeply moved, is used in Mark chapter 14, verse 5, during the anointing, where the the feet of Jesus with perfume were anointed, and the response of the people was that they scolded her. Same word. Same word. And this word, greatly troubled, that we saw in verse 33 and 34... Where Jesus says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. That word greatly troubled signifies being shaken or agitated. Now, I told you I wasn't going to go into this, but I'm going to say it. I'm just going to say it because I think it's really helpful and it's going to tie in right here in just a second. That word greatly troubled shows up in John chapter 5 verse 7 when the pool of Bethesda is stirred up and agitated and it also shows up in John 14, 1, where Jesus says, familiar verse to us, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So the opposite of being greatly troubled 
is settled trust. So what's going on here? Is this just mere sorrow on Jesus' part? He's like, oh, I'm just so sad that this has happened. No. I think, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but it appears that he sees the actions of these people as questioning his love for them. And he's deeply troubled by that. He's, in fact, a little agitated. Do you get it? I mean, Jesus has gone through all this. He has shown up. He's put his life on the line. He's made promises to you. And it bothers him that people would doubt his motives for why he does what he does. He's troubled by it. Now, don't miss this. It really doesn't change the main point. The main point is that Jesus wants Mary and Martha to know just how much he loves them. He wants them to be absolutely persuaded that he cares deeply for them and he's committed to their eternal well-being. And it grieves him deeply when we're tempted to not believe that he loves us as much as he says he does. So he gives Mary a ministry of tears. He gives Martha a ministry of truth. And we need both. And we have both in Jesus. We have a Jesus who gives us truth about himself and who he is, who also comes alongside us and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And that's a Jesus. You know, we tend to be as those, and let me just give a, a word for those of us who are called in this season of time to be comforters, which we all are. If you're like me, you typically fall out on one to two one of two ends, depending on your personality. You're either a fixer or you're a feeler. What do I mean by that? A fixer who is someone who comes alongside a grieving person and says, now let me give you truth. And just gives you the ministry of truth. Here's, what, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Quotes Bible verses to you. The feeler is someone who comes along and says, I'm sorry for your loss, but doesn't have anything to say to you. And do you see here that if we're being sanctified and formed into the image of Christ, there's going to be an overlap of those things in our lives as we grow in grace so that we are neither total fixers nor total feelers. But we have a wonderful transformed presence about us that is both truthful and tearful at the same time. And I thank God that when I look out at you all, I believe Christ is forming him, himself deeply in you because I see that reality. Even more than me sometimes. And that shouldn't surprise you. But that's the case. He's forming himself deeply in you because you are concerned not merely with being a fixer or a feeler. Not merely concerned with the ministry of truth or the ministry of tears. But you are both because Jesus is forming himself in you and Jesus is both. And then what he does, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And this is the glory of Jesus. If we had time, we'd read it. But in verses 39 through 44, Jesus says, take away the stone. And he turns to Martha and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'll see the glory of God? And he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And he came out grave clothes still on. And Jesus said, take those off of them, let them go. And this is the glory of Jesus. Jesus raising Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. 
He's the arrival in history of God's final glorious resurrection of all things, including our bodies. Believers, you will be raised from the dead and one day shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Lazarus is a preview of that. The same voice that spoke life into Lazarus is going to speak life into you and raise you from the dead. At this event and in this story, we see a window on the glory and power of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is saying to us, I love, for you. I love you so much. And my love for you is not found in sparing you suffering and death. It's the gift of myself, my glory. Do you see me? Do you see me for who I really am? Come to me. I have much more to show you. And in the midst of your darkest hour, I will show up and I will work something really, really good. Now, let me close with this illustration. There's a particular scene in The Voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis where the Don Treader, the boat, has sailed into Dark Island. Everyone on board the ship is absolutely petrified because they can't see anything as they're sailing in toward this dark island. It becomes more and more pitch black and they can't see where they're going. They can't see their, even their own hand in front of their face. Absolute total darkness. Except for one single brave mouse who has a tendency to put his foot in his mouth a whole lot named Reepicheep. They sail forward into the darkness only to hear a terrifying sound. Eventually, they find the source of the sound and it's a man in the water. And they bring him on board the ship. And this person warns them <coughs> to turn back. Now, they've got some lights lit and things like that so they can see a little bit on the ship. But the reason this person warns them to turn back is because he says, this is the place where dreams come true. And at first... The people on board are very excited. They're like, great, this is where dreams come true. But they misunderstood what they meant. Because the dreams he's referring to are actually the dreams that you wake up from and you can't go back to sleep. Nightmares. And they can't find a way out. At one point, when it appears like they'll never escape, it keeps getting worse and worse. And they try to clear their minds of having to think about their old nightmares. Because if they do, they're, they're going to find them coming to life. So they try to clear their brains, clear their brains, fight this, fight this, fight this. They're afraid. They're terrified. And at one point, Lucy whispers to Aslan, who, as you know, many of you, is the talking lion, the central character in the Chronicles of Narnia and is a symbol of Jesus Christ. She whispers, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you lived with us at all, send us help now. And Lewis writes the following. Listen to this. The darkness did not grow any less but she began to feel a little, a very, very little better. At about the same time, a crew member sees a tiny speck of light ahead, which again did not alter the surrounding darkness, but did, as Lewis writes, 
light up the ship a little. Now this is what I love about C.S. Lewis and his brilliant insight. The darkness didn't lessen. God does not eliminate the darkness or calm the storm. Instead, he joins them in the darkness. And in the midst of that, they feel a very little bit better. Going on, Lewis writes, Lucy looked along the beam of light and presently saw something in it. At first, it looked like a cross. And then it looked like a kite. And at last, with a whirring of wings, it was right overhead and was an albatross. It circled three times around the mast and then perched for an instant on the crest of the golden dragon at the prow. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice she felt sure was Aslan's, and with a voice of delicious, and with the voice a delicious smell breathed in her face. Now I can't read that scene without thinking about this account, because it's here that Jesus comes to his friends that he dearly loves, that he's doing things that they don't understand, that he's up to something really good that they can't see, and he comes and joins them in the midst of the darkness, and he says to them, "Courage, dear heart." Courage, dear heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see the Lord Jesus as you have revealed him in this passage. You are kind to us. You are good to us. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for his tears. We thank you ultimately for the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the new age breaking into this age and the age that is to come when he retur- in, in its fullest sense when he returns. We worship and bless you. And we trust you. And we thank you that when you call us into darkness, you join us in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen. I will rise when he calls my name. Let's stand, please, to sing.